0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 240 of dun, dun, the uh, Metabolus 2 podcast, <laughs> which features David and Ben. And what are we talking about today, Ben? Uh, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our, uh, of our odyssey of giving our five best of the
1: production designers. And we are entering the 2010s, I think, with production yeah. design today. So it'll be seven more years before we can or well, six more years before we can even talk about the twenty twenties. So this exactly. is this is it. This is this your is fix. <laughs> yep, yep. It's over, everyone. It's over. Uh, our final um, final look at set designs, well production designs, I guess. The the big yeah, picture, the, the executive, the producer level design. Yeah. Well,
0: what should all this look like,
1: man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. The big picture.
0: The visionary. The big- the visionary. he Only he or she can see that far into the future and it's
1: a he. Spoiler It's alert. been a he. Yeah, it's been a he in Modern Who. We've only had a few production designers since the show returned in 2005. The yeah. first five series, a classic RTD era and then the first year of Moffat with Edward Thomas and then Michael Pickwood. Mr. Pickwood. Took over from him and then with uh, Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker R. Will Wynn-Jones came on board for Series 11 and then wrapping up most recently and with series 12 onwards was uh david Shermer.
0: i'm I'm just going to throw in my two cents on mr pickwode regular listeners to the podcast will know that i'm a big fan of the movie with and i Mm -hmm. which is an absolute classic of kind of british comedy films which was designed by pickwode i think that was one of his his early design efforts and his brilliantly designed in my opinion so i have a lot of time for pickwood and mm-hmm. i like the way i like the way he does things
1: so like in the classic series a lot of times the house or the the bbc designer would go on into movies and with michael pickwood it was kind of the other way around that this is really his last big job dr who's so he had a career in movies a career doing design and then his culmination his uh, capstone project was uh, dr who's so it, it's kind of an inverse trajectory for pickwood yeah
0: and it's kind of in some ways it's kind of an ironic one because he he wasn't a, he obviously he wasn't a sci-fi fantasy space guy um mm-hmm. you know he wasn't there doing like alien or something He was a British interiors Miss Marple kind of guy. Yeah. Which I I think always, to me, kind of made him an interesting choice to do Mm -hmm. Doctor Who, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I've read a little bit about him, read some interviews about him. And he was kind of surprised that they wanted him to be a designer for Doctor Who because he said, you know, I'm not a spaceship guy. I do country houses and that kind of stuff. And exactly what he focused on is he tried to make the boring parts interesting.
0: That was his mantra, right, interesting, right, okay
1: he wasn't steeped in Doctor Who lore at all. He said there's plenty of people on the production team to do that. And what he focused Indeed. on is, you know, making it look like a big movie with a Doctor Who budget. And I think he does really excellent job on many, many productions. And it's hard to determine where sets begin and where his locations. Right. He was very skilled at blending location and set together and we'll talk about some of his triumphs would you like to go first or would you like me to lead off uh why don't you lead off and right. we'll see where we get to so my first pick is towards the end of amy and rory's time with the doctor in dinosaurs on a spaceship and i thought you were going to pick dinosaurs on <laughs> a spaceship you love that one i do and it's a huge set that was um done at upper boat studios the massive Silurian spaceship was a bigger set even than the underhenge set that i picked previously right and it gives the sense that dinosaurs can be in it if you had a claustrophobic set and i'm thinking like to the original series like fury from the deep or something that is enclosed or even on a a smaller sound stage you wouldn't feel like dinosaurs could be roaming in it but he does a lot with this big cavernous space in when you focus in on the design, there's really not a lot there. Right. Um, Right. It's mostly just providing this big visual space where you can then run CGI or practical effect dinosaurs through. But what he does with it shows kind of a derelict spaceship. Like there's dust and sand on the floor. There's cobwebs hanging down. He does... Great stuff with shadow and lighting. So what's obviously, you know, looking at it critically is on a soundstage, but it allows the imagination to fill in way more than what's actually there. And then since part of his work was also integrating with locations, he did Southern Down Beach and Dunraven Bay for the Silurian Spaceship Engine Room. And then there's this kind of throwaway sets of the Indian Space Agency and then Solomon's Spaceship, too. So there's a lot of different sets that are taking place in this story, but they're simple, and they remind me almost of what was being done with Cusack and Newberry way back in the the early, early era of Doctor Who with just curtains and lighting and shadows to provide Room for the imagination to fill in the blanks. And I think Piccolo does really well with that. Just a hint, the suggestion, and let us finish the rest.
0: Yeah, i would, uh, that's exactly what the point I was going to make, actually. Um, uh, it's not one I've watched recently, mm-hmm. but the impression it left with me is you know like almost like the Sea Devils base in the Sea Devils mm-hmm. which is basically like you know a BBC studio hung with black drapes mm-hmm. which you can kind of see that that's what the Sea Devils space is like but it gives you the opportunity to kind of fill in the rest of that space with your imagination yeah and the titular spaceship is kind of like a big studio with black drapes around it and yeah <laughs> and that's where the dinosaurs can leap around, and robots can walk about, and and the, and mm-hmm. the action can happen. Um, so it's a it's a you know it's a it's it's kind of a blank black canvas on which um, on which things can happen, which is exactly what's needed for this uh, uh, for that story.
1: Yeah, you have the black canvas, you have the black drapes, but then you also have just the hint, the arches and stuff, and it's very it's right. very almost theatrically set, which reminded me of the earlier nineteen sixties set designers that. Uh, knows how to employ the tools of his trade to maximize the budget rather than trying to build an entire soundstage. It's what can we do in shadow? What can we do with just a suggestion? So very, very nicely done for me. Excellent. Good.
0: Um, I, I I agree with that choice. I didn't actually pick dinosaurs in the spaceship because I knew you were going to. Um, <laughs> but it's a good one. Um, so my first choice is the eighth episode from the sixth series. It says here, um, and that would be <laughs> that would be "Let's Kill Hitler." Ah, okay. Which again, I think plays to Pickwood's strengths as a designer, someone who knows his interiors. Mm-hmm. And someone who knows his history um, and someone who knows how to create on a low budget an accurate impression that we are in a particular place. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Berlin in 1938 in the height of the Hitler regime, kind of a hard one to do. Um, uh, again, it says here that um, Swansea, um, a lot of it <laughs> was, was, was filmed in Swansea, which, of course, is very similar to uh to Nazi Berlin um, in, in, <laughs> in, in, in many ways, in many ways. Um, but, you know, it's all about those little touches. Mm-hmm. It's getting the right costumes. It's getting the right vehicles. It's getting the right weapons. Mm-hmm. It's getting some, I mean, I guess maybe this is the director here, but, you know, it's getting the right camera angles. It's assembling everything so that you can sell the notion that we are in a place that we quite patently cannot be. You know, this is a time travel show. Um, it is about time travel, but time travel isn't real. And not only are we not in 1938 Berlin, we're not in Berlin either. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what a production designer, I believe, this is what I think you, you, you're you doing, is you're, okay, how do we create the illusion that we are in somewhere that we're not. Um you know, mm-hmm. albeit you know it can be a, a spaceship with dinosaurs in it, um, or it can be a very particular historical historical setting. I understand that the only real set they built for this was Hitler's office. Mm-hmm. Because the TARDIS has to crash through the wall, obviously, uh and therefore and also, you know, Hitler's <laughs> office is a... Um, no, I'm well I guess we do know what it looked like, but you know, Hitler's office needs to look kind of particularly a hitlerian and also ridiculous because i think right. you know the part of the uh, the the unique selling point of this particular episode is that you know the nazis and hitler were ridiculous right and you know as, as we all know the one way to piss off authoritarian people is to laugh at them um, right like donald trump don't laugh at him he gets mad at you and I, I mean i think they did an excellent job berlin 1938 is a big budget film location Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of Indiana Jones level yeah. of deception. Last Crusade. And they they pull it off very nicely and mm-hmm. I think that's down to Pickwood.
1: Mhm. I think another thing that Pickwood does at the beginning he has to sell this character of Mel being River Song. And right. that's true. Mel has been part of Amy and Rory's life throughout which Obviously, if Moffat had a little better sense of where he was going, he would have woven Mel into the very first story and whatever. But he's trying to retrofit Mel's into, and so Pickwode has different classrooms and bedrooms and hanging out with Amy and Rory through time that give that suggestion again of time travel of time elapsing so that again i think is a sign of pickwood's grasp of the task at hand right 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 exactly oh good I I think playing off of what you're saying with Pickwood's ability to capture historical settings, my next pick is The Mummy on the Orient Express, which which, uh, is entirely set-based pretty much, except for the final scenes when they're on a beach, reinterpreting the Orient Express for a spacefaring train and getting the feeling of how this would look on a modern reinterpretation and like you said he had done set design for miss marple and stuff so he's familiar with the period right or he's just being a poor row story but he gives different angles or different ways of Filming this so he can film through a window. He can film lengthwise through a carriage. He can film... Get us... Like if the roof of the carriage wasn't even there and looking down. He has many different ways of providing the director and the um, DP to make this visually interesting beyond just we're in a rail car where we have to look just lengthwise. So he provides... Areas of interest, visual interest, the boring parts (laughs) to allow the director of photography to make these shots look glamorous. And and you can tell just the details by like the lights hanging from the ceiling or what's the artwork that's on the walls of of the carriages. There's a lot going on that doesn't need to be there per se.
0: Yeah, and I think a train is a. You know, there are lots of movies set on trains, and I think you mm-hmm. know the challenge. The challenge of a train, as as again as you've just pointed out, it's a train. Um, you know, it's 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 a long, thin thing with um, seats on one side and seats on the other side. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know it's even more restricted than an aeroplane. Yet you know it's a great place to have mm-hmm. a story because it's an enclosed space and everyone's there, and it's Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. So ensuring that the set is flexible enough so that you can get the shots that you need. I think in some ways with, with a bigger budget production, the more money you have, the easier it gets, like most things. Um, and to be able to, you know, work with that claustrophobia that is the train carriage
1: on a kind of BBC budget. Again, Pickwode can, can do the job. Mm-hmm. I guess the last little bit I want to call out on this, and that's kind of a cheat is uh, his set design for the TARDIS console, which was introduced with Matt Smith. But I think it works so much better of Capaldi because he added roundel elements. He added bookcases. He right. lowered the lighting. They changed it more to be a blue fit. So when he invites Perkins into the TARDIS at the end, I think it kind of showcases what Pickwood can do with, trying to give visual sight lines to the directors where, okay, up on the galley, they can film looking down. There are places big enough that you can have a handheld camera to film a scene to provide visual interest. And you see it throughout the Capaldi era where directors can say, well, I want to look down at the council. I want to look up at the galley. So he's doing a lot to provide options to make things look interesting
0: yeah because essentially you know, in some ways the TARDIS interior as is traditionally formulated is not that interesting it has detail mm-hmm. but it is on one level right you can't go up you can't go down but to create this impression that it's a you know like a country house library of some kind to you mm-hmm. know keep on pushing the kind of Agatha Christie um, feel to this, you know, with kind of library steps and books, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, a bit of brass in there. Yeah, very beautifully mm-hmm.
1: done. Yeah, it fits in like he he added blackboards because Capaldi is a professor, and so right, various right, stories. Right. There's blackboards in there. The whole spinning rotor at the top is evocative of the big light fixture that was in the original console room set design. It's a twist on the time rotor. He has reinterpretations of this classic in a non grotesque way which right sadly that would be the console room that would come after yeah, it, no. in my
0: view yeah no I, I i also agree i think that the big spider fingers are very weird yeah um um uh excellent yep yeah, nope I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that I I, I mean I don't think we, either of us are going to disagree with anything here because I think he I think Piwell did an excellent job yeah uh, you know to be the production designer for basically what is quite a long time mm-hmm. on one show yeah and I think in some ways it shows what a what a good show Doctor Who is because it's it's it is so versatile and so varied that as a production designer you're kind of not you're not going to get bored. Um, mm-hmm. every, every episode is different and every episode needs a unique design and a unique feel. I would think that the, you know, the challenge of doing this kind of, certainly viewing-wise, <laughs> week by week, you know, would be kind of thrilling, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And that is segueing into my, my next choice, which is from the eighth episode of the seventh series <laughs> of British <laughs> science fiction television series Doctor Who. Um, and it's Cold War. Ah, the sub-story, the Soviet yeah, sub-story. Yeah, it's a base under siege. It's a submarine under siege, and it's under siege by an ice warrior. Ooh. Um, So I like submarines. I like submarine stories. You know, obviously, you know, one likes, uh, you know, Das Boot and... Um, mm-hmm. By station Zebra and uh, oh, Zebra, as the Americans call it, um, uh, and all of the uh, all of the attendant excitement of, again, you know, like a railway carriage, the claustrophobia of being enclosed within a space. And within that space, there's something out to get you. Now, of course, we don't really know what the interior of a Soviet submarine kind of looked like um, We have an idea of what it might feel like because, you Mm -hmm. know, Hunt Red October, etc. Yeah, you know, it's a movie location. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a difficult location because there's a lot of gubbins inside a, a submarine. There's a lot of levers and wires and pipes and tubes and dials and things to open other things and things to close other things and nuclear missiles and torpedoes and a bunch of Russians. Um, And everything's in Russian because it's a Russian submarine. And basically, I was sort of in my mind, I was comparing this to another, slightly later, obviously, submarine set, Claustrophobia, There's Something Out to Get a Show, which was the the recent BBC production uh, Vigil, uh, which was kind of a murder mystery Mm. set inside a British nuclear submarine, which was very, very unconvincing. (laughs) Um, It was clear to me that... They really only had maybe three sets, right. and they would just turn them around, and, oh, it's a different bit of the submarine, right. which I thought was odd, because, of course, we know what the inside of a British submarine looks like, because there are submarines, and you right. know, there's pictures of them. So I, I just think it was interesting to me that I think Doctor Who did a far better job of giving us that sense of enclosure and claustrophobia and also alienness of being inside a Russian submarine. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting that Gatiss... The writer of this episode decided to set it inside a Russian submarine rather than inside an American submarine, or a British submarine, or a French submarine, or whatever submarine. Um, you know, it's, it's in it's inside the submarine of the of, you know the enemy. Uh, <laughs> if if we're talking about 19, 1983. and you know, on a BBC budget, on a Doctor Who episode of the week. Budget. It feels pretty convincing to me. You know, it's dark and dialy and knobby and Cyrillic-y and uh,
1: works extremely well. Do you know how much of it is set and how much it is location? Um, and was dressed to look like a Russian submarine.
0: Uh that would be an excellent question that I do not know the answer to. I actually poked around quite a lot trying to find out. Okay, was this a set? Or did they film it in the power station that they film everything in? And I really couldn't find out.
1: Well, either way, it just shows the brilliance that Pickwood can lead because it's very convincing that it is a Soviet submarine in the Cold War. Right. And... Like the Mummy on the Order Express, it is effectively a long tube, and he provides interesting camera angles. You don't feel like the set is too big. The submarine is too big. Even with those different camera angles, the claustrophobia, if I recall correctly, from Cold War, especially with the Ice Warrior outside of his armor— Had the whole alien vibe where there's someone on the spaceship, someone on the submarine, something out there that can kill us and we don't know what it is. And I think where this works really well is Pickwode's design allows for the length. You have these long tunnel-like shots of looking down the submarine down to the engine room or whatever. So you get this long and narrow claustrophobic space feel to it. And then it's lit really well. There's... Is, when yeah. when when it's on a red alert, you have the red lighting, and then you have yellow lighting when we're talking. It was David Warner, right? Yeah, David Warner is yeah, the yeah. kind of sub-scientist Boffin, guy. Yeah. Boffin, yeah. And then... Yeah. Ice Warrior we would have green, and then when it's just kind of in a neutral state, it's blue, and it complements the set to provide just enough structure and just enough uh, visual detail. But then the imagination he puts the audience to work to fill in the details where there's shadow, right? Right, and actually,
0: I mean, sort of so, a little bit going back on myself, I mean, I suppose. In some ways, the fact that we don't know what the interior of a Russian submarine looks like really actually maybe makes the kind of set design perhaps slightly easier because you can kind of make it up. I mean, I'm just thinking about Hunt for Red October, and, which is a great movie and, um, you know, really exciting and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I always felt the sets for that were like too big. It's like, how can it be that big inside right. a submarine? And you're inside a particular kind of Russian submarine that's kind of super giant. I guess this is maybe like a smaller one. But still, you quite rightly referenced the kind of alien, the movie idea where, you know, it's just kind of dark and drippy and inside and... There's a monster which works really well, yeah. and, and and you can't see the joins. You know, it's it really does present the set as you can imagine this being an entire submarine, even though it is only probably three or four separate bits of location that they just redress to provide a different location. But yeah.
1: Mm-hmm well it's expertly done and it's all about making your budget go as far as it can and if you can find a location with dressing rather than do it entirely on a soundstage you're going to do that and that's i think where pickwood's expertise and vision comes into play is right. he can really with years you know decades worth of experience really maximize the visual impact of that any production has. And I think we see it time and time again with the stuff that he oversaw as production designer. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed, agreed, agreed. So, moving on, my next story kind of is a blend of set and locations, and it's in the Capaldi era, and it's Heaven Sent, where we have <sighs> two different castles. We have Cardiff Castle and Carefilly Castle, and then we also have sets at Rolf Lock Studios, For the various rooms and digging the the grave scene in the garden. All these things work seamlessly together. And you don't know it's in two different castles. You don't... It's really hard. I can't tell where... Is this a castle room that's been dressed? Or is this a soundstage room that is made to look like a castle? Like you said, you can't see the joins. And for a story that shouldn't be that visually interesting where you're in castles so you have stone walls it is visually interesting because right. of the way that the story is being told but also the way that Pickwood's design vision of we need these various corridors we need these various staircases we need these windows he can take the best of physical locations and knit them together with sets to provide this otherworldly trap that the doctor finds himself in. And I just think it's a again a I overuse this word with Pickwood, a brilliant design. combining the real with the imaginary and where he just doesn't over egg the pudding so to speak it's right it's just the right amount it's just perfect in how far he pushes it
0: yeah exactly and i mean i think that's his sort of light touch i mean it's a you know, it's a it's a one-hander. There's one actor mm-hmm. in this, and uh, I guess there's a monster as well. There's a ghostly creature, but it's basically Peter Capaldi mm-hmm. for an hour doing some things in what is essentially a, you know, it is a fantasy location. It is yes. a location that is, um, that is actually a set. It is a place that has been created to enclose and imprison the Doctor and it is a place that is mutable. It doesn't really have; um, it changes according to yeah. what the character is doing at any particular time. It's mm-hmm. a it's a magical realm. It's a kind of horrific, horrific magical realm of some kind. And to ensure that that is also convincing, I think would have been an interesting challenge for a production designer. And he pulls it off beautifully. I mean, this was again this was on my list too, but I didn't. Um, I I went with something else. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's perfectly done and it is both convincing as a real place and it is also convincing as a fantasy place, um, which I think is a really neat trick to pull off.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think part of that is how he incorporates the big stone gears that turn the various configurations of the castle every time and then how he has that set with the big glass wall that he has, Capaldi, the doctor, has to keep punching to get through over 10,000, a million years or whatever it was. Right, right. And so the fantastic elements look like they fit within these medieval castles. Right, right, <laughs> right. It all right. kind of seamlessly integrates together. And once again with the story, his TARDIS console room design just slides seamlessly in with the story with the narrative that Moffat is trying to tell and it's done through lighting through the use of blackboards there's enough interesting camera angles that we are in to use a Moffat word this mind palace of Capaldi where he's trying to work out what's happening to him so right, right. it's 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 a nice reinterpretation on Moffat's part but also on part. Of the TARDIS, the console room is the Doctor's safe place. This is where he goes in to his quote mind palace to think, to work out what's happening, what is this place, what's happening here, what do I do next? And right, so, right, I, right. I it's it's the one it's the one constant design that you get to reuse as a designer, uh, a production designer in the modern era is the console room set, and with Pickwood's Capaldi era console room it provides so many opportunities for reuse and different ways of telling a story. And it's again, a credit to his vision.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Okay. So my next one, well, first I'm going forward to the 10th series. So the final uh, series of Capaldi, which I just think is just a, you know, is a, is a, is a really kind of um, it's, it's so ironic that it was a kind of last, the kind of final season for Moffat. And it's like, okay, wow. I actually, I have got some new ideas after all.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. I mean, I just want to shout out for the the framing set design for the night series, which is, you know, the University of Bristol or wherever we are, mm-hmm. which which kind of leads into this idea of the Doctor, particularly the, the Cabaldi Doctor, being a university, being a, a diktat of some kind, you know, a university mm-hmm. professor. And that office that he has is... It's all very convincing. And again, yeah. you know, we, we are, we're, we're, we're kind of back in kind of Miss Marple, Agatha Christie territory. And the way that that space is lit and the way that it is populated is just 100% convincing and a perfect place for the Cabaldi Doctor to inhabit if he's not being inside the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the particular episode that I zoomed in on, and ironically, it's another Gatiss episode, And, of course, it's another Ice Warriors episode, because I'm going for (laughs) Empress of Mars. Excellent. Which is shot in some caves. And actually, again, thinking about it even more, it's another, ooh, we're enclosed inside an enclosed area episode. Um, And I think, I believe, we are in the Red Cliff Caves in Bristol. Okay. Which, uh, not only are caves, which is helpful, but they're also red. So, you know, wow, okay, we're, and Bristol is you know, within shooting distance of Cardiff. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a perfect location for a, an adventure set underneath the surface of the planet Mars. And I just think it works really, really well. Mm-hmm. It's, again, is how do we dress a pre-existing location uh, and a pre-existing, you know, relatively challenging location so that it both looks like itself and also looks like a place where there might be some ice warriors hanging out or at least a, an Empress ice warrior. Mm -hmm. might be hanging out. Um, As regular listeners to the uh, podcast will know, and actually this was, in some ways, wanting to pick this episode was a little bit prompted by the recent Blu-ray announcement. Um, I'm a big fan of Underworld Mm -hmm. from uh, Tom Baker's Season 15. And here we are. We're some caves. We're back in some caves. I do like caves. Mm -hmm. I like caves almost as much as I like submarines. And (laughs) it's how do we... How do we use our location in the best way possible? You know, we're not wasting our money by having to drag everyone to the Red Cliff Clays in Bristol for a couple of weeks. And uh, how do we use that location? And how do we also make that location work as an alien location too? And again, I think they do it really, really well, really, really accurately and
1: really convincingly. Mm-hmm. Pickwood's designs lets the the beauty of the red walls of the cave do almost all the work in the set, and that's what makes it convincing. It's, it's, it's not a soundstage like you would have in the Silurians. It's not CSO, which you would have like in Underworld. Right. Every time you use an actual cave, whether it's Wookiee Hole or in Revenge of the Siren or whatever, you get a much better visual feast, and fortunately, Doctor Who can do this in the 2010s.
0: Right. What is often the genius of Doctor Who is that it takes the constraints of budget and location and, uh, you know, shooting schedule, which is pretty intense, and uses those constraints to make something really special. And I think this is this is my this is my
1: um, enjoyment of Empress of Mars. Yeah, very good. I think following on again, this is this to me, this following story is the pinnacle of michael pickwood's design work for doctor who and it's not an alien location it's a historical location it's playing on his his strengths and that sarah Dollard story thin ice from the final capaldi season right and the frost fair set entirely enclosed set and pickwood again, provides various different levels and very different angles to shoot from and having the old Blackfriars bridge in there that allows for the doctor and bill going down the stairs. It allows for someone dropping vegetables over the bridge wall and into the Thames. It helps sell that you're on the Thames because you're crossing over a bridge. If you didn't have a bridge there, right, would we even know that we're on a river? Right. It, it's a combination of... Of physical effects, but then like the, the skies, you know, it's been filmed against the green screen. So those are right. all computer done. But with the dry ice and the fogging that they do, it all kind of blends together. It fits within this time period, I think, so well that it feels to me, I can feel the cold of the frost fair. I can feel, right. I can feel the locations and i i went and kind of fast forward and looked through it and no you don't see the doctor and bill's breath when they're speaking but you could almost you feel like it should be there or feel like it is there just due to the mist and the fog and the cold yeah it's
0: about selling it's about selling the gag Mm -hmm. and creating enough visual material that you go okay yeah all right i know this isn't really 18th century london but you know what it might as well be because it's that good Mm -hmm. and it's got all the kind of wintry things i think that work um i mean i guess this is maybe through having slogged through episode after episode of game of thrones you know the whole winter thing where basically they just sprayed some stuff on the ground and then there's little flakes floating in the air like i've done it's winter um (laughs) it's that mist that really does it for me in this yeah. um in the in the the frost fair set yeah yeah, yeah. um it, it it both allows us to imagine that this is on the river Thames mm-hmm. ie we can't really see the rest of it, so maybe it's there and also makes it feel really really cold and you can just imagine that mist coming off this icy sheet and again as you say you know with all the all the fun of the fair around it it's it's a it's a it's a really kind of delightful set. I kind of wish that the, mean, I'm not a big fan of that the particular episode, um, it seems a little bit perfunctory in some kind of way. I don't like the the creature that's been under the Thames for millennia or whatever it's doing. Right, right. But I would love to have so, another plot to have happened in that set because that set mm-hmm. is so good mm-hmm. and so exciting. And, you know, I kind of just want the Doctrine Bill to wander around and have a nice time at the fair.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking too. It would have been nice to have them enjoying themselves a little longer before the mystery of the, what's underneath the ice with the lights kick in. And I think the one detail, in addition to the mist and the foggy air that sells it, is on the stonework, in the cracks, in the grooves between, in the, in the joins between the blocks, there is dusting of snow. There's snow dusted on the chain ropes. There's just the little hints of snow everywhere that gives it the cold and it it just... As someone who grew up in Minnesota, I know what Just outside. Just to say that exactly. Yeah. yeah, I know what outside in the winter looks like and this looks like outside in the winter. And this is I this I think is
0: interesting is of course, you know, growing up in Great Britain, as I'm going to assume Michael Pickwo did, mm-hmm. you don't know what snow looks like because it barely basically doesn't snow that much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I've spent a good proportion of my life now in Minnesota, like where you grew up. And, yeah, you know, it looks a particular way. Um, And it isn't just about spraying a bunch of a bunch of white paper goo on the ground and like saying, okay, that's probably snow. It's a whole it's a whole vibe, as as I think the kids say nowadays. And (laughs) you've got to pay attention to the every bit of that vibe and pick out what are the key parts and make sure you address those. And things like the mist, things about thinking, well, how does snow settle? How does frost settle on a surface? Just perfect. Very, very well done. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Well, exactly. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so my um, my next choice for our spin-through design is, again, from the, that final Cabaldi season, and I'm going to do uh, World Enough in Time. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a great episode. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely in 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 incontrovertible, whatever the word is. Um, not something that could be argued against. It is a great episode. Um, it is obviously it takes its cue from a uh, from a big finish, but kind of builds on that. It has quite a lot of different sets. Um, you have various kinds of spaceship, you have a cabin in the woods, kind of, uh, you have a creepy evil hospital, um, right. which is kind of also on the spaceship and you have a re you know, you have a dynamite opening, which kind of feel that Moffat was like, okay, I'm just going to do that. And then I'm going to work out what the story is. After Mm -hmm. that happens, Um, uh, so spoiler alert, a dynamite opening, which, you know, just draws you into the story and the sets support the story all the way through. There are a lot of different locations and it all fits together very well. And the locations neither outweigh the action nor do they fail to support the action. They don't undermine the action by being too much and they support and they don't you know then they provide enough support of the action to make you believe that this is really going on and it's uh, just very very finely judged and kind of beautifully done and as i said it's great production
1: design mm-hmm. well the creepy hospital i think deserves a special call out because it's a horrible it, hospital it shows what he does again it's he shows just enough to give you the impression of where you are and then lets your imagination fill in where the shadows are right right he's using all the tricks that he's learned over the years to really (laughs) make this more horrific than it actually is the use of shadow is, uh, is phenomenal in this particular episode of uh, Doctor Who. Yep,
0: absolutely. And um, I just actually think when you when you were talking about creepy hospitals, we recently enjoyed watching The Last of Us, um, which, spoiler alert, ends up in a creepy hospital. And uh, that's how you do a creepy hospital. Uh, you know, it's dark. Mm-hmm. That's what makes a creepy hospital creepy is it well this is not what a hospital should be like and again i'm just keep on repeating myself just perfectly judged by mr pickwood just enough to give you what you need to sell the gag which is doctor who is a thing that's really happening and um yeah like it very much
1: yep Super. All right, for my final story, I'm going to say, I've said goodbye to Michael Pickwode, and I'm mm. going, going with our Welshman here for... I will win Jones. <laughs> I'm not a particular fan of the story, but I do like this set a lot, and that is the set for the Sanangra Conundrum. Oh, interesting choice. Okay. This, to me, shows that Jones could design or had vision. The, on, on to Seranga, the quad zone rescue craft, I said at the time that I would have rather had the console room, the control room of this rescue craft, the seranga be Jody Whittaker's console room. Oh, right, right. It's all white. It's a clean, sleek design, not unlike the Heart of Gold from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's spot on for a hospital rescue craft, but it, I think it also would have worked better for the Whittaker doctor than the flaccid crystal dongs that she got stuck with for her console room design so instead of the horror hospital that we have in world enough in time this is a high-tech clean non-horror hospital the horror here isn't the hospital the horror is the pating or the pating destroying the spaceship But the hospital itself is clean. It's well lit. It has visual cues. The corridors are round, so you have the suggestion of a spaceship. And then, like the antimatter room, it's very a simple design where it's just a a a plinth with a antimatter coil. You know, right? uh, um, Sci-fi technobabble, effectively. But the, the control room with the hanging down console. I think would have worked so much better for the Whitaker Doctor than what she wound up with. To me, this could have been another reinterpretation of the TARDIS where you, with, right, you had right. plenty of corridors, you had a really sleek, sexy console room, but not to be. Who, who was the designer? Was, was Win Jones the designer for the Jodie TARDIS? Yeah. Mm, yeah, well, he should have swapped those rounds, and that would have been fine. Well, it wouldn't have worked at all for the story, but he should have just, in my opinion, should have just uh, deep six the console room design. It just, if you look at how Talalay shot the Pickwood TARDIS in World Enough in Time with Capaldi sitting up in the gallery chatting on a headset to Missy, compared to what we get with the Jones console room set with those phallic plinths of stone there the shadow doesn't work there right, right. the angles don't work it's visually disturbing i think the crystals were supposed to give a warm feel to it but it just kind of gives more of a creepy sex dungeon feel Oof, to it yeah and it doesn't complement jody whitaker's doctor's character at all to me it would have worked better with uh She's kind of a tinkerer. She made her own sonic. She's comfortable with a blowtorch and a welding a welding torch. And underneath Yeah, she's bright and breezy. Right. And so we got this dark, stony cave for her, and it just it never worked for me as Whitaker's TARDIS. And I think having something more sleek or even the console room from the season. Fourteen with the Jules Verne council room would have worked better for the Whitaker Doctor, but what she got saddled with just
0: yeah, it seemed. I mean, it, really, uh, it was a failure. they don't want to turn this into like we don't like Jodie's Tardis podcast, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it seemed like <laughs> they they came up with an idea and then they tried to make that idea work. Um, and what they should have done is said like this isn't working. We need a different idea right. rather than we're gonna these crystals. Yeah. Crystals are a thing. Her Sonic is like a crystal, and this is like a crystal, right. kind of maybe. Uh, yeah. And uh, the, the one thing that that set reminds me of is they look like fingers. Yep. Um, they look like evil fingers. They look like evil spider fingers, mm. um, made of crystal. And it's 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 a master's TARDIS. It's not. It's yeah. Not, it's, it's the it's Rani's the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. It's the Rani's TARDIS. Perfect. It's it's not. It's an evil TARDIS. Mm-hmm. If Jodie's doctor is anything, she's good. Mm -hmm. she's a good positive bright energetic sees the best in everybody jolly kind of person you know she's like a jolly hockey sticks 1930s schoolgirl hero right and this is just the wrong Mm -hmm. the wrong place for her to be in my opinion but there you go
1: yeah and what guts me is i think they had something that could have worked as a console room much much better in that first series with the suranger conundrum
0: right Right, agreed, 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 agreed. Well, I'm also, I'm also, I'm also sadly leaving Mr. Pickwode behind, and I am going with
1: Spyfall. Yeah, David Shermer gets the final nod.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of James Bond. Um, I didn't really like Spyfall that much, but <laughs> as a Bond pastiche, particularly the kind of Daniel Craig era, yeah, they've got, yeah, they all the notes are there, and I just think that was. Um, Uh, You know, it's the one time where Jodie Whittaker kind of wears a different costume. So that's nice. And it's Doctor Who does James Bond. And they sat down and went, "Okay, we're going to do Doctor Who does James Bond. Uh, We're not really going to have a convincing alien villain. Uh, We're just going to have like a slightly more convincing human antagonist. And we're just going to do all the things that should happen if it's a James Bond film. Um, and then we're going to throw in a master, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. which is actually what makes it good. I mean, Sasha Darwin's master is so, so good. And sadly, I feel let down by, you know, scripting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in every scene he in, he's in, he's just does absolutely the best he can with what he's been given. And I, you know, as I said, I'm a big James Bond fan and it was fun to see Doctor Who do James Bond Really effectively, um, and just kind of just piggyback off the success of those Daniel Craig films, mm-hmm. um, which were you know coming to the end of his tenure when uh, when Skyfall was broadcast. So
1: that's my final pick. The set that I really liked from Spyfall was O's Outback uh, Research Station yes, lab. Yes, yes,
0: absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. Agreed, 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 agreed. And
1: I'm sure this was filmed in South Africa to get kind of that vibe. And it probably was a, a location rather than a set, but it was dressed really well and really convincingly that this shed was in the outback, in the bush. And right. it gave the remote vi- remoteness, the vibe of... O's out here hiding or researching or something, and I didn't pick up at the time. I don't think I picked up until the unveiling that O was the master, even with the heavy-handed uh, <laughs> uh, dialogue hints and stuff. I think you could have tipped it with the sets, but uh, Jones doesn't. Even the even the well not even the historical pieces work well. But Nura Inyat Khan, the spy right. The, the, right. In, in Paris, in Paris, yeah. yeah, those sets hiding under the floorboards with the Eiffel Tower reflected in kind of in the windows sells the Parisian aspect very nicely. So uh, I think it's a, a nice bit of set design on Shermer's part.
0: Yeah, it pivots beautifully from James Bond to Secret Army and kind of back to James Bond again. Yeah. And even though, as I said, the story's a mess, the designer gets all the beats right. And yeah. there is enough eye candy um, in these two episodes for me including Sasha's performance, that means I you know, mentally kind of skid over what I dislike about it, which is pretty much everything else, and, um, you know, just in, in, enjoy the way it looks. Uh, mm-hmm. And, if you know, this level of excellence in terms of the way things look and the performances maybe continue throughout the Jodie tenure, I would have liked it better. But
1: anyway, there you go. Yeah. Very good. Well, those are our top five from the tens, I guess. Top five from the tens. You heard it here. Ten stories with excellent design across three designers and three doctors with uh, Smith, Capaldi, and Whitaker.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, just to, you know, uh, kind of wrap up the whole series that we've been doing again it is just so interesting to me as i again as often said how you know doctor who just reflects so brilliantly the way things have changed across 60 years of time and the way the art direction and set design and production design and production direction have changed since 1963
1: to 2003 is um this is one of the things that the show shows us yep definitely and It makes sense why the industry moved into an executive level producer effectively for the visual, all visual aspects of the production because early on we saw when the sets, when the costumes, when lighting, et cetera, all worked together, that is when Doctor Who really shined in the classic era. and. I don't think we have duff sets and duff designs in the modern era with it, things are more hits than misses and it's, right. it's harder, it's harder to separate out what is really spectacular because the level of quality has just been raised significantly since the show's return in 2005. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. There, yeah, exactly. There, there are, there are very few, if any, misses mm-hmm. and, where the misses happen it's in you know it's, it's in the stories unfortunately
1: well it's yeah or it's in the timing it's sort of like it's really hard to do a christmas special in the middle of july and then yeah 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 i mean that's not that's not set that's that's uh that's rtd for example <laughs> so. yeah that's
0: just geography yeah exactly yeah. like what mm-hmm. it's the summer um so yeah. anyway yeah. yeah
1: so it's not it doesn't come down to production design it comes down to well what do you expect me to do here <laughs> <laughs> What can we do here? Very, very little to make this look like winter. Right, especially right. at the time. But you can do more and more. Make it look winter, as you can tell with. Uh, well, you can change. You can regrade the sky now. You can exactly. do more can. with computers. So it's becoming indistinguishable from magic, I guess. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah, a the, the, the deleafing program on your on your CGI. Mm. You can just like take all the leaves off the trees. There you go. All it's right. done. I would invent that for UK production. (laughs) Well, very good. Well done. I think we've
1: done excellent work here. All right. So thank you for listening to episode 240 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I am off to step foot on the frozen Thames, taking Ben on a tour of the Frost Fair. Oh, goodness. And I don't
0: know. I'm (laughs) going to co-opt the master, and we're both going to go and kill Hitler together.
1: (laughs) Until next time. Goodbye.